I am in a mini-series, and it's titled, Love to Get It, Hard to Give It. And you have to say it like that. <laughs> Love to get it, hard to give it. Because there are certain things in life that, well, should be rather obvious. We love to get it. But to do it in reverse and to give it to somebody else can be very difficult. Last week, we talked about gentleness. Today, we're going to talk about faithfulness and what that means biblically. And what does it look like to put some tools in our tool belt to help us, practically speaking, flesh out this attribute, which also is one of those attributes of God himself through the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we get to celebrate something today which just happened to coincide with today's message, which is great, because I'm sure that Dennis and Marcia, two people who are streaming in because of their mobility issues, hello, Dennis and Marcia, we're glad you're with us today because I'm sure that 54 years ago, leading up to today and, and to this week, they probably said to one another, you know, I'll bet that in 54 years from now, our pastor at whatever church we wind up in is going to be preaching on faithfulness. So I think we should set the date for our wedding in May. And let's do it just around, oh, I don't know, May 24th or something like that. And it worked out really well. So thanks for planning ahead, Dennis and Marcia. You did a great job. Because just last Wednesday, they celebrated 54 years of marriage. And we're sending you all the love right now. Can you feel it, Dennis and Marcia? We're sending it your way. And you may not have received it yet, but you'll also be receiving some flowers from your church family who loves you and are so proud of you for setting the example of faithfulness. All right, let me ask you something to get into this topic of faithfulness today. And usually I'll say no finger pointing, no hands raised, but you can actually raise your hand on this one. You can. Um, would you agree with me that you think Everybody is imperfect. If so, if you agree with me, raise your hand. Very good. And if you didn't raise your hand, I just have to tell you, you're imperfect. <laughs> just checking, though. Just checking to make sure that we're all on the same page. Thought you'd probably be with me on that one. Uh, we're all imperfect, and one of the most necessary attributes, because we are all imperfect, is faithfulness. That's why we need some of these things that are we love to get them, but it can be very difficult to give to somebody else. Faithfulness is that attribute necessary for us to work through conflict and to come out stronger on the other side after a resolution has happened. So here's a, a real practical kind of definition. Faithfulness is hanging in until the resolution happens. That's just a practical way of fleshing this thing out, hanging in until the res resolution happens. So in this mini-series, love to get it, hard to give it, I'd like to give you some biblical tools. So everybody hold up your tool belt. I'm going to just put several of those tools right in that tool belt for you today. Good for you. And you're going to come out ready to grab some of those tools the next time you find yourself in conflict because I think that biblically speaking, these are going to be so handy for you to use. Uh, raise of hands on this one, and you can raise your hand as well. Has anyone here, present where I can see your hands, encountered any conflicts within the last month? Any conflicts? Oh, quite a number of you. Very good. Okay. How about within the last week? Quite a few again. How about within the last 24 hours? <laughs> All right. Yes, I think that that helps us understand that 
these spiritual skills, these disciplines, these tools in our tool belt are important because we all have conflicts just about every day of the week. We have them all the time. So we need faithfulness every day. At work, you have to work with some of those turkeys. Fortunately, that does not apply to me. <laughs> at home, at home with some of those folks that you have to put up with. Uh, at school, if you're a student, some of you have finished school, so life's going to be perfect for you now. No more conflict. Perhaps at work or at church, or perhaps even in a small group or a ministry team, sometimes the conflicts arise because of things that just don't go right, and you can't, you know, troubleshoot what's going on with that. But we need it. We need to exercise that. What I'm showing you is that this applies to all of us, and it's vital, and it's going to really help us in our daily life. The tough truth about this attribute, however, is that very few people were taught, or at least taught well, how to exercise faithfulness. Very few people were really taught that, and we don't know what we don't know until we know it, to quote my wife. She's also the one who said, everybody's short until they're not. But we don't know what we don't know. So I'm, saying, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty because we haven't, a lot, haven't had a lot of good teachers, but we haven't had a lot of good teachers showing us what faithfulness looks like, looks like when it's fleshed out. We got plenty of examples about how to run away from conflict or how to deny that we're having conflict and pushing it under the rug or how to escalate the conflict until it explodes and somebody else runs away. We have lots of good examples for how to do that kind of stuff. Can I get an amen? We see that all the time. But we haven't had a lot of really good practical teachers to help us develop a strong biblical model of faithfulness. So, let's get into that today, shall we? That's why it's important for us to look at Jesus. Oh, I'm so shocked that a pastor would talk about Jesus as an example. And here I am mentioning him. But he's a great example of faithfulness, and we're going to look at that along with a couple of his disciples, especially Simon Peter. So here's the first thing you need to do. Get your tool, ready to put it in your tool belt. The first thing you're going to put in your tool belt, if you're going to develop the Holy Spirit's attribute of faithfulness, commit to continuous care. Continuous. That's different from continual. Continual can be sporadic. It can be often, but not all the time. But continuous means without stopping. So that means that right up front, you're going to commit to care for that other person even when the resolution hasn't taken place yet. That's continuous care for that other person. And you make a commitment up front to say, God, this is a conflict. I don't like conflict. But I make a commitment to caring for that other person in the conflict until there is some form of resolution. Now, I have to also say, caveat here, sometimes the resolution is they make a choice and they have free will. And we can't determine that. And we can't make them choose something we don't want them to choose, which means that sometimes the resolution is you've done all you can, humanly speaking, as far as is humanly possible, says the Scripture, live at peace with one another. But sometimes that's impossible, and they make their choice. But then you can still be at peace with yourself, and we'll talk about that too. But you'll say, man, that's hard to be continuously caring for somebody in the conflict even when the resolution's not happened yet. You're right. It's almost impossible. It's really hard. But that's exactly the kind of commitments that, that's needed, and that's what Jesus modeled for us. It's the first necessary part in developing this attribute of faithfulness. 
Joy and I, I've mentioned this before, received some really solid biblical teaching before we were married. And so we made a commitment, even apart from our vows, which we expressed publicly in front of God and witnesses. But personally, we exchanged a pledge to say we were never going to haul out the D word and use it as a weapon. And we just made a commitment not to ever threaten the other person with the word divorce. We just said right up front, we're not going to do that. Because I've seen far too many instances where somebody started just saying that because they were in the heat of passion in a moment. And oh man, once that thought gets up there in the other person's mind, everything can go south in a hurry. Because doubts creep in and they think, well, they made a vow to me, but now it sounds to me like they're willing to break that vow. And so we just said, no, we're not going to go there. I, I have to use this kind of funny illustration from Ruth Graham Bell. Billy Graham's wife, and she had said, or Ruth Bell Graham, she had said in an interview one time, they asked her, said, Ruth, have you ever entertained divorce in your marriage with Billy? Because they knew that Billy was an evangelist that traveled literally all over the world. He was hard to keep up with. He was so energetic, and she was raising those kids at home and doing most of the work herself and stuff like that. And she goes, no, no, I've never entertained divorce. Murder, yes. <laughs> but divorce, no. Now, I must say, she was joking. That's unbiblical as well. But I'm quite sure that in my marriage, uh, Joy has probably considered murder, even though she's never used the D word, and neither have I. Because we agreed, we're not going to do that. But you want to see somebody who's a really good example of making this upfront commitment to keep loving us, even though the resolution hadn't happened yet? That's Jesus. And there's a verse that even shows that. Romans 5.8 says, but God showed his great love, and that's like the chesed, the loving kindness that is made new every morning, the kind that we see in the Psalms. His chesed is made new every morning, and it's expressed to us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, which means before the resolution happened. Now, personalize this and put me in place of us, and you get this sentence. But God showed his great love for me, by sending Christ to die for me while I was still sinning. And he personalized it for all of us, and he still does, which means that he's still committed to loving us even though sometimes the resolution hasn't happened. So here's another thing for the tool in your tool belt. If you're going to develop faithfulness, attack problems, but not people. Attack the problem, but not the person. That's one of the things that a peacemaker can do. Jesus made some radical statements in his Sermon on the Mount. Most of that's found in Matthew chapter 5. And in a section of that sermon that we call the Beatitudes, he says that when we exhibit these traits or these attitudes, we receive God's blessings, especially relationally in our lives. And so here's one of those statements. He said, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Matthew 5, 9. Now, a peacemaker is somebody who is committed to coming up with a righted relationship. Now, a lot of times, righteousness is defined as a right relationship. I would like to define it as a righted relationship. After a relationship has been knocked off kilter. And somebody's going to say, well, what does off kilter mean? And I would say, askew. And they would say, bless you. <laughs> but what does off kilter mean? Some of you were thinking it, weren't you? I know you were. And, and off-kilter means not level, like a half a bubble off. Some people have described me as being that way. Or 
unbalanced or out of alignment. We had the drums. I had to line them up again today because pushing them through doorways, they have started to become askew. They were out of alignment a little bit, and they weren't fitting right on the cart, and so it kept falling off the edge of the cart, and we're just kind of going, cocoon, cocoon, cocoon. So now that they're in alignment again, we don't go cocoon anymore. We go, ah, and that's what happens in a relationship. Wouldn't you rather go, ah, in your relationship instead of cocoon, cocoon? I mean, come on. A peacemaker is committed to caring for this other person throughout the conflict, even when the resolution hasn't happened. That's the first thing you do. And then they attack the problem rather than attacking the person. That takes it into the realm of objectivity, which de-escalates some of the emotion that can really cloud the issue. This is something else that's very difficult to do, but it's not impossible. If we recognize that we are a child of God and that he is going to give us all the tools that we need to be able to flesh out thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. If he's going to help us do that, then he's going to give us the equipment we need to make that happen. And Paul says, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12:10. And being devoted to somebody else means not attacking them. It means attack the problem, but not the person. Honoring somebody else above yourself doesn't mean denying that there's a conflict. It doesn't mean appeasing the other person. Denial and appeasement is not peacemaking. Neither of those things really work in making peace. Not rocking the boat is not making peace. In fact, when you appease somebody without working through the conflict, you're just waiting for the storm to build until it finally really explodes. And trust me, it will. Making peace, and I'm sure you understand this, is hard work. It's probably where I find the greatest spiritual battles taking place, and most of that takes place in my own heart, because making peace is hard work, but it's worth it. Here's another tool for your tool belt. Point at yourself. Identify factors in the conflict that you are responsible for. Finger pointing is always easy. Have you discovered this when it's pointed away from you and towards somebody else? It's easy. It takes more effort to point at yourself. Try it just a second. It hurts a little, doesn't it? I mean, that's the point. <laughs> is that it hurts. It's painful to point at yourself, especially relationally, and especially when we understand, oh, I am responsible for part of the dynamic that has been created in this conflict, and therefore I have to spend the time necessary to find out what part I need to own. Like that time I got kicked out of that soccer game, I've told you about it, terrible call from the ref. Some people shouted, I shouted too, mine was G-rated. The guy next to me, Jim, was not G-rated. The young ref turned around to look where this not G-rated word was coming from, and Jim was just standing there with his finger aimed in my direction. He was teasing with me, he was messing with me. But the ref was not teasing, and he said, you leave the area and go behind the concession stand until the end of the game, or else I'm going to penalize your team. And Jim just went. He just shrugged and smiled. Jim got me good, I tell you what. And so I looked down the row, and all the people knew that it was Jim who had done that, all these other parents, and they looked at me like, what's he going to do? And they thought, he's a pastor. <laughs> so I went behind the concession stand for 10 minutes. And the point of that silly story is that sometimes, in fact, I would say probably often in a conflict, when we're in conflict, we're pointing at the wrong person. And 
it really is an important thing because sometimes the wrong person gets penalized in a conflict if we're not pointing at the right person. We need to point at ourselves. When we are in conflict and we want justice, our tendency is to always blame. We want to point at somebody else. But God knows your heart. It says so, Luke 16, 15. He knows your heart. So maybe, let's just say for the sake of argument here, that the other person in this conflict owns 95% of the responsibility for that conflict. But I'll bet that if you try hard enough, you can still find 5% that you're responsible for, even if it was just your overreaction to their overreaction. Hey, I do that all the time. I understand what that's like. It's so easy to dive in there and things start escalating. And so then in how I responded to that, I jump into the fricus, the, the ruckus, the, the fray. I jump into that mud with both feet and then we both get muddy. It happens. But here's the deal. When we're wounded, we want to make sure that the other person has as many wounds on them as we have on us. And so what does that mean? It means that, metaphorically speaking, we try to kill each other with paper cuts. And that's very slow. And it's very painful. And yet that's what people do when they get into this personality war, and they're just hurting each other and wounding each other again and again and again because everybody's trying to keep an even score, and they just won't let it go. They won't stop. Some of us parents know that when we have a strong-willed child who takes after their father, that sometimes they're going to always try to put in the last word. And I remember car trips where our firstborn would try to have the last word, and I would always try to up that last word with another last word. And I finally had to get to the point in my parenting where I thought, wait a minute. I'm the parent here, and I can act like the adult in the room because guess what? I was the adult. And yet I'm trying to argue with somebody who's not able to be argued with. And so I just needed to stop, let her get stuff out of her system, do whatever she's doing. She's the one who's going to give herself a headache by doing all that stuff. I just needed to stop. And sometimes in the conflict, we need to stop the escalation and be the adult in the room, point at ourselves and say, take a breath, give it a minute, and see what I can do to help fix this once the smoke has cleared. Simon Peter was like that when he said, well, what about him? Now, this is a little bit of a correlation. It's slightly different in terms of the the topic here, but it still applies. This was after Peter had denied Christ. Christ was dead, buried, resurrected, and then he reappeared to these people, and then he reinstated Peter, and Peter was feeling ashamed because he had denied Christ. And then Jesus reinstates him, gives him a new purpose in life, and says, feed my sheep. In other words, care for these other ones just like I've been caring for you guys. And then Jesus hints about the type of death that Peter's going to endure, and it's not going to be a fun death. And what does Peter do? He goes, well, what about John? Now, some commentators have tried to soften that and say, oh, that was brotherly love. He was saying, well, what's going to happen in John's life that's next? But when you read what Jesus' response is, I think it gives you context for that. Now, I think Peter was saying, if I'm going to suffer, what about him? And I think that's the same basic principle that happens when we're in conflict. If they're making me suffer, then aren't they going to suffer just as much? I think they should, because we think that's fair. We think that's justice. And Jesus says basically, hey, you worry about you, Peter. Let me worry about John. So what is it to you if I return before John passes away? And some people mistook that to mean that they thought his second coming was going to come while John was still alive. Now we understand in context that what that meant was that All the other apostles were going to give their lives as martyrs for the sake of Christ, 
But John was going to be exiled to this prison island, Patmos, where he was going to live out the rest of his life, which is good for us because we have some more books of the Bible because he was writing while he was there. So the point is, we're always tempted to say, yeah, but God, what about them? And even sometimes if the conflict looks like it's been resolved, but they haven't gotten enough pain, and we see this all the time on crime shows, and we see the people that say, I don't think that was a big enough sentence. I think they should have been life in prison for what they did, and they only got 50 years. That's not enough. And we hear other people that would say, yes, but I understand that really I'm the one who keeps myself prisoner if I continue to hold on to that because I'm continuing to allow them to control my life, which is why we need forgiveness. So what do we do next? After we've started to realize that I need to find whatever percentage, maybe if it's even only 5%, what am I doing that's causing this or at least is feeding into it? How can I be responsible for that part? Then we stop long enough to get still and we ask God for his wisdom. If you need wisdom, says James 1.5, ask our generous God and he'll give it to you. He won't rebuke you for asking. And a lot of the wisdom that God gives us is self-awareness. When we think about asking for wisdom, what he's really doing is helping us to see ourselves more clearly so that we can take responsibility. That's wisdom. And he sees our heart. Even when we're in denial, like that little girl that had chocolate over over her face that's on TikTok, you know, know, the girl goes into denial. Did you see some chocolate? No, mommy. Have you fed into this conflict? No. And God says, well, let me help reveal to you some wisdom. I'm going to show you the truth about yourself. The answer is, yes, you have actually fed into this conflict. Let me reveal to you how. And I find that he does that for me when I'm in the quiet moments away from other people, away from the people who are continuing to escalate that stuff. And so we need to put ourselves in a position so that God can speak to us that way. He sees every heart. He knows every plan and thought, 1 Chronicles 28.9. So I have to stop pointing my finger. I have to get still, have to get quiet. And then I have to ask God, this is the dangerous question, God, please show me where I need to be responsible in this conflict. And the wisdom that he gives, listen to this in James 3, 17 and 18. This is the kind of wisdom he pours out to us. It says, the wisdom from above is first pure, and then it's peaceful and gentle, as we talked about last week. It's open to reason. Isn't that important in trying to work toward resolution? It's full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty and without insincerity. That's good kind of wisdom, wouldn't you say? And look look at the harvest that comes out of that. The harvest of righteousness or a righted relationship when it's been askew. Bless you. Okay. The righted relationship, the thing that grows out of that is it's sown in peace by peacemakers. In other words, we're planting seeds of peace as we're doing this. If we're in this exercise of spiritual discipline, we're planting seeds of peace. And God says, good, I'm going to make that grow. You just keep looking at yourself. I'm going to show you what you need to be responsible for, and then you apologize for that which you are responsible for. Don't try to say, but here's why I did it. Don't go into a big explanation. Just be responsible for the part. It's amazing how quickly somebody else will start meeting you halfway when you take the first step. It's amazing what happens when that happens. And then here's another one. 
You remember that old sh uh, song, walk a mile in my shoe. I walk a mile in my shoe. Everybody sing with us now. Okay, I don't remember it either. I just made it up. No, I think there is a song like that. But this one's called Walk a Mile in My Motivation. Walk a mile in the other person's motivation is one of the tools in your tool belt. Well, how do you do that? You need to try to ask enough questions and listen long enough to find out why they would have done what they did in that situation. That's tough to do as well because we don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But if we're going to seek God's wisdom, which is gentle and peaceful and full of righteousness, then we're going to need to walk a mile in their motivation. He says in Romans 12, 15, this is Paul that says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Well, that's pretty easy. But weep with those who weep. That's empathy. And what God is saying to us in his word about trying to de-escalate tensions and bring resolution is that we need to develop empathy for the other person by understanding there may be a good reason why they acted the way they did or why they said the thing they said in that heated moment that's called empathy now you can have sympathy for somebody and it can be pretty selfish sympathy can mean you can say oh that's so pitiful i have pity on them and boy am i glad i'm not in that situation that can be sympathy but empathy goes deeper than that it says oh man I understand. I can feel why they feel that way. I feel their pain. I feel their hurt. I'm weeping with those who weep. That's empathy. So walking a mile in another person's actions and their uh, history leading up to that action can help you develop this kind of empathy. I told you before, Joy and I had 16 years of marriage and then things started to go south. I didn't realize all the things that I was doing for the Lord, of course. Because when you say you're doing something for God, who can speak against that? Even though I was making her life miserable because I was miserable because I was trying to solve everybody else's problems and I didn't have time for her and I didn't have time for anything else, but I was doing it for God. And then she finally said, I can't do this anymore. And I thought she meant folding laundry, which is part of the problem because I clearly didn't see what was going on. And I said, well, here, I'll help you. And she goes, no, not this, not the laundry, this. And I said, but what is this? And she goes, our life, this life, this mess that we're living, you're going all the time, you're angry all the time, you're solving everybody else's problems, but there's no room for me. So we went to counseling. Best thing we ever could have done. Best thing we ever could have done. And one of the things that I learned in that was to sit and listen quietly and listen to find out how my actions and words had hurt her specifically. Not generically speaking, but specifics. Well, when you said this, this is how I felt. When you did this and you rescheduled that and took off, even though we had plans, this is how I felt. All those specifics started to pour in on me, and all of a sudden, I began to get it. God was pouring in this gentle wisdom into my heart and into my life, and I developed empathy for the first time in years. I wept with those who wept. And then I was able to start owning my part in that conflict. So you think, okay, why would you have behaved that way? And she'd give a story and say, well, because this happened back here. I had the very same feeling in this situation because it was so similar to that one. I think, oh, that makes sense. I, I get it more now. I was walking a mile in her motivation. So we need to be willing to forgive regardless. But this really helps us be able to forgive even more because we do understand there's a reason for that. I understand why you felt that way. 
And I'm so sorry that I fed into that because if I had known that what I was about to do was actually triggering something that was so traumatic, I would have done something different. And I promised to do it different in the future. And in our situation, gratefully, and in Dennis and Marsha's situation, after 54 years, if you were to combine this August our number of years of marriage with Dennis and Marsha's, you'd have 99 years of marriage. And in our situations, in both of these families, I'm grateful that the seeds sown in peace resulted in a righted relationship. And we're both still hanging in through many, many different resolutions of conflicts. And then here's another one. And this is one of these spiritual things, and I'm going to try to make it practical because it sounds generic sometimes when we say, you just need to empty yourself, just let go and let God you know, and we use that with a platitude, and I like that, and I think it's true, but you think, but how? People ask, how do you do that, though? When I'm full of myself, then my ego kicks in, my pride kicks in, I'm easily ticked off. But when I'm full of the Spirit of God, things don't bother me as much like they do when I'm full of myself. You see what I'm saying? So practically speaking, I need to quit feeling like I need to be in charge of everything, especially when there's a conflict, and I need to get myself under the flow of the living water so that the Spirit can pour Himself and this attribute of faithfulness and gentleness from last week into me and through me to the other person. That's what spiritual disciplines do. It's not a self-help book where we're manufacturing extra energy to do these things in our own strength. We're placing ourselves through these disciplines in the place so that the Holy Spirit has access to us and he's the one doing the work. It's a matter of getting into his presence. It's an access problem. And what happens is when I'm full of myself, I keep pulling myself away from being under that stream of living water and I'm away from God's word. I'm away from God's people who are talking about stuff that they're going through too because we're all imperfect and we're all helping each other along that same path. And when I get distant from him that way, I find that I get more and more full of myself, and I'm so much more easily angered. And I want to be the one that has the last word, just like I did with that four-year-old. And it doesn't work. Here's one, James 4.8. I love James. You could read the book of James in probably 20 minutes, and I highly advise it. He's so practical. He says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. How true. How do we come near to God so he can resolve the conflict of the inner spirit, which is where most of this stuff starts? The real conflict is usually not that turkey that you're dealing with. It's usually inside your own heart. That's often where the real problem begins. Paul talked about in one of his letters, too. When I'm at peace in my own heart, it's just a whole lot easier for me to put up with other people. And some of the stuff that used to tick me off, I'm able to just look at it with a different, objective, rational sense that God's got this, and I understand where they're coming from, but I'm not going to let them trip my switch, even though I know they're trying. I'm filled with God's peace, and it changes the conflict. It changes the dy dynamic. It's like you need heat and you need fuel, and you need oxygen for a fire to burn. And if you, if you remove any one of those three, the heat goes down. And that's what we're doing when I remove myself enough to get in God's presence, and I start taking care of that inner peace. Then all of a sudden, the tension of the heat just goes down from that friction. A couple of ways to do that. One that works for me, because I love leading in worship when I get a chance to do that. Thank you, praise team, for allowing me to sit in. But it's different when you're leading worship than when you're just doing personal worship. 
because you're paying attention, you're trying to, it's work. I mean, it, it is hard work, but you're doing it so that you can lead other people into God's presence. But when I really feel it is when I'm by myself, either on a walk with my earbuds or alone in some room, and I'm just listening to good music that calms my spirit and puts me in tune with God. I posted something on our closed group Facebook page that will help you do just that. It's one that came back into my mind, and it's one that was sung by a friend of ours, Phil Carr, at the Going Away concert that we had at Southern Baptist Temple in Phoenix when we left Arizona to start heading into this pioneer territory of things like Michigan. And it's called Slow Down by Chuck Gerard. And if you haven't heard it, you need to listen to it. It's just such a slow, pure, beautiful sense of breathing and getting into God's presence. And so I highly recommend that. But whatever works for you, you need to get into that place so that you can start dealing with that inner peace. Bible reading and meditating on the Word works. I found because when I kind of go at 90 miles an hour throughout the day, and once I get still, I get sleepy. So Bible reading late at night has not really worked for me. I know some people think, no, no, you have to have your quiet time before you go to bed. Well, if I have to, I'm going to fall asleep five minutes into it. So I've discovered that for me, reading the Bible or listening to it being read to me on an app and taking a walk helps me get away from the distractions, and I'm not just answering my texts and all that stuff all the time. And so for me, taking a walk helps me ruminate on it, meditate on it, and that starts to deal with the inner peace for me as well. Here's another good one if you can do it. Read before you fall asleep, but let God start dealing with you even as you sleep. I've had to ask him sometimes, God, I don't have a solution yet, and I need one. Can you work in my brain even while I'm sleeping? And it's pretty remarkable what he does, even in your subconscious. I think the Holy Spirit, I mean, he created us, so probably he's got access to that. And I think he does a good job because I'll wake up and I'll have solutions in my mind that I didn't have before I laid my head on that pillow at night. Here's another one, tool in the tool belt. Become part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Jesus became part of the solution. In fact, he was the solution, especially to Simon Peter. Simon Peter had his biggest problem. He needed forgiveness. And then he needed to be pointed to a new purpose. And Jesus said, I trust you, I forgive you, so go feed my sheep. Go to work, trust me. I've got lots in store for you, kid. And he put Simon Peter to work, and he became a great spokesperson for the gospel. Still had a few little conflicts to resolve down the road. He started messing up a little bit. Paul had to take him aside and give him a noogie. Say, Peter, have you forgotten what we talked about? The gospel's for everybody. You're showing prejudice again. Don't do that. And Peter goes, oh, I know. I'm sorry. Mm. You know, he still had to be worked on a little bit. But... It was really great that Jesus saw that potential in him and said, yes, you're going to stumble from time to time, but I just keep picking you up and dusting you off, and you're going to do great. How about your worst day? Let me ask you this question. We'll try to put this into a real-life situation. What if somebody you knew saw you on your worst day ever? I mean, you know the kind of day. You wake up, your brain chemicals are just not quite right, you slept wrong, maybe you got a crick in your back or something, and you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and everything that you touch breaks, and everything you try to say comes out wrong, and everything is just... You know that kind of day. And then they see all that escalating stuff going on inside you, and something happens, and then you just, I mean, go off on somebody like you've never gone off before. Would it be fair... For that person who knows you 
to see you on your worst day and then just blacklist you and write you off? It's easy for us to do that. It's really easy for us to do that. And what I think I see happening, especially with Jesus Christ, is he's saying, I saw Simon Peter on his worst day ever. And Simon Peter had several bad days. <laughs> there was the one when he tried to suggest that there was a better way other than going to the cross. Not a good, not a good look, Peter. <laughs> Jesus had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. You're, you're thinking about things that are temptation for me and I have to do this because I'm the only one who can pay for the sins so no that was a bad day how about up on the mount of transfiguration he opens his mouth again hey let's build three tents and camp out up here with Elijah and Moses and Jesus this is great let's sing kumbaya and do some more Woohoo! You're going, no, Peter, you don't get it quite yet. Still had to come down off the mountain. They were still arguing down below. There were still some things that had to happen. But I think his worst day, as you're probably imagining, was when he denied Christ. He denied even knowing him. But aren't you the guy? I recognize your voice. You're from that area. Aren't you? With... No, never knew him. I can't imagine even trying to look Jesus in the eye after that. Did Jesus blacklist Peter? Did Jesus just write him off and say, no, sorry, Peter, you blew it. That was one too many. Should we blacklist people even though we saw them on their worst day? Maybe as we get in God's presence and he starts dealing with the inner conflict in our own life, we will see that what he wants us to do is exactly what Jesus did for us. And we need to commit to loving that other person through the conflict until we get to the other side. Unless, of course, they choose to completely distance themselves and they plant their tree farther away from our tree, and then there's not much we can do about that. But we can do everything, humanly speaking, to try to get there. So when we are filled up with God, here's what happens. We become quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, I wish that I could tell you that I have really conquered this one. I have not. Uh, this is Sinners Anonymous meeting. Hi, I'm Clark, and I'm a sinner. And I still struggle with this because I still need to constantly get myself in the stream of the Holy Spirit to be filled up with more of God because I get filled up with myself, and my ego gets involved, and I still find myself on certain days when I'm just more easily angered than other days. And so it's a constant battle. Fortunately, it's my favorite verse in the Bible. He who began that good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day Christ sees me face to face. He's going to keep that up. But everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, and that's what we keep striving for as we place ourselves under the stream of living water through these spiritual disciplines. It's only possible when we empty ourselves so we can get filled up with more of him. Ultimately, though, as we walk a mile in the other person's motivations, as we commit to seeing it through all the way till a resolution, as we develop empathy for them so that we can weep with those who weep, other, ultimately we can forgive them. There are certain people in my life that they have never come back and reciprocated that forgiveness to me. I've got a few, but I've still forgiven them. And that brings me peace because I understand that now if they have a problem, they're living with their problem, they've got an inner peace problem. But I'm okay because I've said, God, I've let that go. And forgiveness is a constant process of letting go that desire to get even or that desire to hurt. And I've been able to do that with some folks to say, I don't have that anymore. Thank you, Lord, for taking that away. 
So ultimately, we need to do for others what Jesus did for us, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And when that happens, and when we're able to be faithful the way God is faithful to us, fortunately, things can happen like 54 years of marriage with Dennis and Marcia. And we're grateful that you're setting the example for us, and I'm praying that many, many others will follow that example, and that we'll see faithfulness in action starting even today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for building into our lives these character qualities that are so vital because we want to flesh you out to others so that they can see you clearly and respond to you. Thank you that you continue to work in us even though we've blown it. Oh, there's so many times when I'm sure you probably felt like blacklisting me, but you didn't because you were faithful and you keep forgiving. Thank you for that. I pray that we will continue to do all these things and exercise the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and these practical tools in our tool belt that you give us through your word so that we can keep working all the way through to resolution in so many more conflicts in our life so that we can be blessed and we can be called children of God. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.